Welcome to Bio-Citizen Banter, a podcast dedicated to environmental philosophy featuring lively discussions between people active in the effort to bring biotic health and diversity to our communities and commonwealth. This is a philosophical conversation between myself, Kurt Heidinger, and Ricardo Rozzi, who is a very distinguished environmental philosopher among many other things. And I am sitting here with my daughter, Ursa, who is the director of BioCitizen in New York City, and is also going to be studying in Chile, where Ricardo is from, and where he works with many very amazing people and is a very vital actor in environmental education and activism in that country of Chile. We'll be talking to him for the next few minutes about his perspective on things. And so we're going to ask you, Ricardo, a few questions. You can tell us about your past a little bit because we'd like to learn about you because we're going to have many more conversations with you on the BioCitizen podcast. You come from Chile and you decided to study in the United States and to work in the United States. And for those of us who live in the United States, this is very interesting. You know, why would you come here? What, what drove you to say, you know, I want to study in the United States. What attracted you to our culture? <laughs> well, Kurt, uh, I'm happy to be with you and Ursa, who direct by a citizen. And I started answering that way because... Um, to be biocitizens today, we need to really take the global scale into consideration. What happens in the U.S., what happens in Chile is interrelated and has been increasingly interrelated mostly after World War II, when the period that's called the Great Acceleration. So in that Great Acceleration that uh, started after World War II, more plastic was produced, uh, a lot of production and consumption really exploded, including the emissions of CO2, the greenhouse effect, and all that. So the, the first answer is we cannot address environmental issues in the U.S. without having the global perspective. We cannot address this global, the environmental issues in Chile without having that global perspective. So the U.S. was a way to, to have a dialogue and that dialogue has a history that was also attracting to me. And then I found you. But <laughs> what has, was attractive to me was the dialogue that took place, let's say, you know, this between Walt Whitman, the transcendentalist, uh, inspiring Pablo Neruda. And then Pablo Neruda inspiring a figure like Edward Abbey, whom you know better than I. But what I mean is that dialogue, that cultural dialogue between U.S. and Chile has been very rich, and not only a cultural dialogue, but also a political dialogue and a scientific dialogue. In, in the political dialogue, um, the neoliberal school had a high impact in Chile. I mean, the, the, the neoliberal school from Chicago, having Milton Friedman as one of his thinkers, changed our country. But the U.S. is more than that. And the U.S. also had um, a good school of environmental ethics, an inspiring school. And, and I read some articles by Jean Hargrove and by Bert Calicot being in Chile. And it was curious to me that 
this article were not about the instrumental and economic value of nature to make a case for why to conserve or to respect animals, mountains, rivers, and more broadly, the biosphere. And so I was attracted by that. And so I would say those are the two reasons that they, we need to address uh, social and environmental problems, taking into consideration both local and global scales, local scale, let's say, and also because I found attractive to come here and learn more about that environmental thought that is in the tradition of the humanities and philosophy. And I want to finish that, well, I found you, Kurt. <laughs> we were together in Connecticut. We traveled together to Utah, to the land of Edward Abbey. Ursa, who is today with us, was so little. Actually, I remember she fell from a stair. <laughs> I was horrified because I was on the second floor, but you recovered so quickly. So you were so plastic. We were so happy. We called you the little bunny. (laughs) (laughs) You were projectile vomiting too. You had a very bad stomach uh, flu that had something to do with the water supply. And at the very last moment, Ricardo, you started throwing up right when we were leaving. We had to go to the. <laughs> well, that's. All got sick. That brings us together again with that topic of the environment. I mean, if the environment is healthy, we are healthy. If the environment is not healthy, we are not healthy. And that was our experience in Utah, which we had good moments, but also some moments that were kind of difficult. Uh, Well, that was a very thoughtful answer, as I expected it would be. I'm going to ask a question for us North Americans who don't know much about Chile. For us, it's a distant and exotic land. And if you had to tell North North Americans like us, what makes Chile and Chileans unique? What are some of the things that would come to mind that seem to you to be characteristically Chilean? Well, I would like to say Chile, 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 Chile. And I say that because our country has the name of birds. The name Chile comes from the call of a bird. And so it's interesting because uh, the caricature of Chile is that Chile, Uruguay, and Argentina and like Costa Rica. Costa Rica is called the Switzerland of the Central America, and we're called the Italy, the little Italy of South and South America. So kind of a European uh, area of South America that contrasts with Peru, Bolivia, and further north, where you have more uh, and, and kind of on the surface an indigenous presence and a more kind of syncretic Creole presence. Our country is kind of a very European, but still the name, Chile, Chile, <laughs> reminds us that it's syncretic. And, and, and I'm very happy that we have the name of a bird for naming our country. In this case, it would be the wild turkey. If it would be the United States, that's what comes to my mind. I like the wild turkey. I like Benjamin Franklin, too. <laughs> so I would say in that we're unique. Also, we're unique. We had um, a woman as president recently. That shows courage. We're courageous. And I, we appreciated Michelle Bachelet as a leader 
So let's say we, we have a diversity of species in the culture. We have a diversity of gender. Um, Chile became independent not so long after the U.S. became independent. The independence of Chile was 1810. Uh, the U.S. became independent but continued talking, speaking in English. So you, you, you are kind of the Anglo <laughs> American, I mean, so you are in a region that's called New England, so it's still very colonized. It's a, a project that started as a nation in, let's say, at the end of the 1800s, in your case, and in our, in our case, at the beginning of the 19th century. One thing that we have discussed, and it's very important for me, is to understand that Chile, the country that I, has the birth name, prior to becoming independent, became to be more colonized, more Eurocentric after the independence. So we need to understand the, the, the logic, the dynamic of what is going on in Latin America and to some extent in the US uh, in terms of what it means post-colonial or <laughs> colonial time. I, it's very interesting that when the oligarchy of Chile took uh, the control of the nation and a nation state was formed with independence from the crown of Castilla in Spain, really the model was much more Eurocentric. Uh, there is an island who has, which has the name of another bird, in this case it's a seagull, and the name is Chiloé. And Chiloé is the last uh, place in Latin America of independence from Spain, and they said that to become independence from the crown of Spain was worse <laughs> because they would be depending on the, on the local oligarchy. Wow. So... Um, so it's very interesting that, so in terms of, of our country, and, and to, to, to show the parallel and, and to see that there's a lot of similarities between the US and the Latin American countries, that's also reflected, for example, in the flag of Chile. The flag of Chile can be easily confused or, or be mistaken by the flag of Texas. They're almost identical. Texas uh, designed the flag a little bit later after Chile, but the point is not to compete who designed the flag first, is to show that both are part of this nation state colonial presence that was imposed on Abayalia, as it's called in this Kuna language, the continent that from a European point of view is called the New World because it was new for the trade in terms of Columbus uh, endeavor. So I think there is a lot of similarities in that colonial part. We win in terms of having the bird more present. The last um, century, Chile was a leading country in Latin America in terms of reforms. Uh, we were the first country with a right to vote for women, uh, education for women, a great health, a public health system, a great public education system. So it was kind of a very intellectual and politically thoughtful country uh, with a lot of difficulties too. Uh, and so I would say that Chile the area would contrast with other countries that the first thing that comes to my mind and Many others would disagree with me and would say, regardless, because you are a philosopher that you're saying that. <laughs> but I would say Chile is more kind of an intellectual impronta in this multicultural, intercultural dialogue as compared to the more dancing spirit of 
other more tropical countries <laughs> where you might be disappointed if you come to Chile, you will not dance so much <laughs> as in the tropical countries. But we will drink wine and, and, and write and think and, and sing in a different way. So the culture of Chile um, has been very international. Uh, and for example, Gabriela Mistral, who is a poet from Chile that wrote about nature. She very curious. She was feminist. She was a leftist, let's say, a Marxist, uh, but a Christian. And, and she was single all life long. So the more conservative people always criticize her as she was kind of frustrated with her life because she was single. So a little bit like Rachel Carson, suffered here in the U.S. a little bit later because Rachel Carson suffered this mostly at the end of the 50s and the 60s, at the beginning of the, before she passed away. Um, Gabriela Mistral was, had a lot of pressure with, inside the country and she received a call from Mexico to do the reform of education in Mexico. And, and she brought there, and really she flourished there too, bringing this uh, rural schools and, and, and talk about the local culture and, and facilitate people, enhance the knowledge that is already with the people in a poetic way, in a way that gives identity. So what I want to say is the, 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 this, until now I have mentioned the birds as the most important thing at the beginning for the name of the country. The second, the parallel stories that the U.S. and Chile have. And third, this cultural aspect that Chile has. And it's a cultural aspect in Chile, but in all Latin America. And I would like to finish coming back to nature. Chile is so long <laughs> along the Pacific coast that it's remarkable. I mean, we cannot think about, I cannot think about Chile and I, I, in this regard, I would agree with many. It's amazing. We have the driest desert in the world. Then we have a Mediterranean zone area that's very similar to California with the coastal cordillera, the Andean range, like the Sierra and coastal range there. Then magnificent temperate forests, like let's say Washington uh, State, Vancouver, and then up to Alaska, you know, and then of course the sub-Antarctic, the glaciers and Antarctica. So it's a lot of ocean, mountains, and still a wildland that it's important to keep in mind that can be very uh, relevant to protect together in a global scale because it brings to the world health in terms of the CO2 that is being captured by the algae, the oxygen that is released, the little pollution we have in general of the air. So it can be kind of a blue lung from the ocean as much as a green lung from the forest and all that for the world in this common uh, local reality that we are living today. Wow. Well, you've given us three different answers. The birds, the people, and the biomes, the many biomes up and down. You have a shoestring of a national border the Andes rise to the east, mm -hmm. to the west. And so you go from the Atacama, as you say, 
all the way to Cape Horn. And Ricardo, I had such an ambitious, an ambitious list of questions for this interview, but the first bo- podcast is supposed to be a nice short one. So yeah. why don't we just stay down in Cape Horn and you can <laughs> tell us a little bit about uh, Puerto Williams and Isla Navarino and the Beagle Channel, this place that you really love. Um, you are, among other things, uh, developing the Cape Horn Research Center, which is a project that involves creating a beautiful building in, in the uh, port town of Puerto Williams, but also a mission that's very interesting. So maybe if you tell us a little bit about if, if, if a person from North America was going to visit Puerto Williams, the Beagle Channel, East Navarino, they're all the same biome. Like what would it, what might they experience when they get off of a plane and, and look around and then maybe spend a week or two down there? And then tell us a little bit about the research center, okay? Well, uh, I hope that those that will share this program and listen, I, I are, uh, feel invited to visit this area and to look at this area together. The, the image that comes to me first is if we're in New York in New England and we take a trip to Chile to this place, I would imagine, let's go to Alaska. And we take the airplane to arrive to Fairbanks, Alaska. And then we would be in a similar situation in one aspect and a very different uh, situation in another aspect. The similar part is that in Fairbanks, you have the northernmost forest of this continent. The, a little bit north of Fairbanks, you have Tulik, which already is only tundra. And it's this beautiful landscape that of a remote wilderness area that has stayed to some extent beyond the frontier of development. And you feel this reconnection with nature. Now you arrive with the airplane to Puerto Williams. And it's more or less the same, but with a big difference in the biome. When you arrive first, forests are luxuriant. It's, it's mostly forest. When I first landed there, never would have arrived at the southernmost point of the continent. It's covered by forests. I thought that was more tundra and a few patches of forest like in Fairbanks. Second, you don't see these large extensions of land. You see these large extensions of ocean in a kind of archipelago of myriads of islands and some islets. So it's it's a little bit a mirror image. And once you are there, you, you, you see the, the, the magnificent opportunity we have for conservation in these subpolar areas today. There has been an emphasis in tropical conservation. Also Antarctica with the penguins is in the mindset of people. But the glaciers and these intricate archipelagos in the south and the tundra, in the subpolar area, the boreal forest 
in the Yukon land, in the Koyukon land, no? Uh, it's something that's not so much present. And so um, you will have this wilderness experience that is similar in terms of being the two subpolar regions, but on the other hand, it's like mirror images. One really immersed in a matrix of ocean. And the ocean shelter you, buffers the temperature, never too cold, never too warm, no mosquitoes for now <laughs> in the summer. Never so freezing as in Alaska. So it's different. And I cannot uh, tell this, and then you interrupt me, please, without referring back to how one of the greatest thinkers and most influential thinkers got his inspiration in this land, who is Charles Darwin. And you, Kurt, have been part of an adventure that Biocitizen and our endeavor in Cape Horn are kind of sister organizations because we started to criticize Charles Darwin for some of his idea, but then we admire his abilities to observe, to write, and communicate a defamiliarizing experience he had that helped him to come up with his notion of evolution that implies a kinship, a kinship relationship that were evolutionary relatives of other mammals, even of the birds, having the dinosaurs we know today as ancestors. And then we go a little bit farther back in time, and I was learning last year a new discovery that shows that conscience, the, 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 the capacity of the conscience, that conscious thinking started in the Cambrian period, 500 million years ago, in the clades of invertebrates, invertebrates. So we can think about how these mollusks, these fishes, these dolphins, and we, humans, today, are thinking a consciousness that is kind of a, a consciousness of the planet. And so it's inspiring. I only can say that it's inspiring. There's a lot to be discovered. And Charles Darwin could be a, a guide and also could be a, a motivation for us to bring the message farther. And this is the dialogue that BioCitizen is having with our initiative in Cape Horn. So that has been the story. and you and I created a course that is called Tracing Darwin's Path, that is a field environmental philosophy course, and we call it field environmental philosophy because it's not only the biology, it's also thinking through and giving something back as responsibility to conserve this treasure. And so I would say Tracing Darwin's Path is field course that takes place every winter break in the case of the US, which is our summer break. <laughs> Uh, in Chile is, uh, has been an inspiration. We have taught it for over 20 years, uh, no, less than 20 years, but 20 iterations. Some years we have taught it twice. And um, it's not so different from what you are doing with BioCitizen here, but it's different in terms of the setting, that defamiliarizing experience. Defamiliarization. Ricardo, we will talk about this soon, but tell us a little bit about the Cape Horn Research Center, because this is a scientific 
and cultural uh, center. It's a foundation. It's a meeting place. It's been a, a dream of yours since I first met you, uh, gosh, over 20 years ago. And so tell us uh, about what you're trying to create in this uh, small little port town of Puerto Williams at the southernmost end of the planet. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, yes, to create an institutional platform, a school that allows this to continue and to be consolidated, um, we have thought together with your court, with also the vision and skills of the architects of INEAD architects, particularly Kevin McClurk and Richard Olcott. And in dialogue with Chilean architects like Alfonso Barruilé, Andres Weil, and others that have been part of this, particularly uh, Christian Ostertag later, uh, there has been a vision to have a school, a school, uh, and a school in a very particular place of the world, Chile, leads today uh, astronomy, astronomic observations. Mm, about 60% of all the astronomical observations that are done worldwide are done uh, out from Atacama Desert in northern Chile. Well, why not to also take the lead of looking at our planet, not outside this planet, and complement? So we look at the macrocosmos in northern Chile and the microcosmos, starting with the biosphere, and then going down, 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 down to the little perceived living beings like mosses, invertebrates, bacteria, this microbiome that is in our stomach, in our bodies, as much in the waters, as much in the ocean, and the health of those rivers, of those oceans are attuned in harmony with the health of our bodies individually and collectively as a society. So. It's like also an observatory. It's a school is also an observatory. An observatory at the summit, the latitudinal summit, summit of this continent, the Americas, called after America Vespucci. <laughs> so it's to have in that summit, latitudinal summit observatory of our own planet, looking at the little, little, little things and looking at them from a biocultural perspective. That means biologically, they're very, very important to understand our own place in nature and many aspects that can be in, uh, for medicine, food, uh, industry, that's true. But also they give us an ontology, a meaning of life and, and a way to understand that we are also those bacteria that we live together. And we, if we disrupt that harmony, then we disrupt our health and in part, this is very pertinent to what we're experiencing today, uh, that we're in quarantine and having this uh, podcast, because in short, that Cape Horn Center need, aims to be an observatory, a lighthouse, if you want, to illuminate the rich cosmos of life that we have around us that we very often forget about. Wow. R Ricardo, this has to be the best conclusion to the first podcast that BioCitizen could ever have. You have not only told us about a project that's extremely exciting and that everybody is invited to participate in, which might be just following, you know, just seeing 
what's going on, but perhaps taking one of those bucket trip great adventures and, and going down and going to a place that we'll discuss someday, the Omora Ethnobotanical Park, amongst other places. And it's a very Leopoldian conclusion also, because BioCitizen is a Leopoldian school, and I hope that we can talk about all the Leopold too in the future. Well, thank you, Kurt. And I really appreciate to have uh, in this session Ursa, because Ursa Heidinger directs New York, and I hope that this podcast can be, uh, be heard by Kelly Moses in the Netflix, because Ursa Kelly Moses, you have the power now to continue this and it will be in transformations in the near future. Thanks. And well, I hope this helps us to stay in a safe quarantine during this period. Ciao. Thank you.